0: Once again, I'm Stuart Mazell, pastor of uh, Westminster. It's good to see all of you again. And um, today we are continuing in our series that's called Gospel Living. We're looking at Colossians chapter 3, so if you'd like to turn in a Bible, if you have one and you'd like to turn there, please feel free. If not, you can look at the screen and you'll be able to see Colossians 3 up there, 3, 5 through 9 on the screen. Last week we looked at Colossians 3, 1 through 4, and we saw that we're to fix our eyes on what is heavenly because that's where Jesus is. And this week we're going to get to the next few verses and see what that means for us here in this life. So again, this is God's word from Colossians 3, chapter, sorry, chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Let me pray for us. Lord, these are strong words, and in many ways we may not want to hear them, Uh, but you have breathed out your word for our good, so give us ears to hear, give us hearts that will receive, whatever may be keeping us from hearing what you have to say, will you deal with it by your spirit so that we will see the goodness of Jesus and the ugliness of sin that we would want to put it to death for your glory, for our good, and for the good of the community around us. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's a question I've never asked in this congregation. Is there anybody who's a, a budding entomologist among us? Do you know what an entomologist is? It's a bug specialist someone who studies insects. All right, seeing that I don't don't see anybody who's saying, yeah, that's me, let's take a look at this picture. Now, for a bug, I'm not into bugs, but for a bug, it's actually kind of pretty, isn't it? You know, that little middle part and, you know, just it's it's pretty in some ways. It could be mistaken for a butterfly or maybe, you know, an upscale moth, Um, but it's not. It is a spotted spotted lanternfly. Anybody ever heard of that? A spotted lanternfly. The spotted lanternfly is an insect that is indigenous to China, but it has been identified as one of the more destructive, invasive species in the United States. It was first seen, I believe, in Pennsylvania, and it has spread to other states since then. This bug poses a serious threat to a host of different crops in the United States. And if this bug was meant to thrive in the United States, it would severely damage what farmers are working for and it would affect our economy in some pretty nasty ways. This one little bug. This is so much true that, and this is true, you can look this up, the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture gave the following instructions to the citizens of Pennsylvania who come across the bug. Kill it, squash it, smash it, just get rid of it. I think that's a good analogy for what we're gonna talk about today. Because today we're going to talk about everybody's favorite subject, sin. <laughs> and sin, if you don't know, if you're new to a church, sin is anything that we do or say or think that is contrary to the way God designed us to be. And just like the spotted lantern fly, sin may sometimes look pretty, but it is very destructive. And so we've been talking about gospel living and what it means to live in light of the gospel of tr- Christ, the good news that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. What does that look like for today? Well, from Colossians 3, verses 5 through 9, we're seeing that gospel living includes killing our sin. Gospel living includes killing our sin. Let's take a look at how this works out. In Colossians 1, sorry, in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, which we looked at last week, we read these words. If then you have been raised with Christ, the idea is that if you're a believer, you have been raised, you have been raised to new life, then you are to seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You're to set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died You've died to your old life of sin, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God, and when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with Him in glory. Last week, what we talked about was that how Christ is central to everything, and that's especially true for those of us who say we follow Jesus. That Christ is central to every decision we make, every life we, every life we live, everything that we do and say and think, Jesus is central. That's the point of Colossians 3, 1 through 4. And then we come to verse 5. Put to death, therefore. You see that therefore is there for a reason, Right? It's connected to if Christ is central and Christ has died for your sins and you are no longer longer in that old self, you are a new self because Jesus has put you as a new self. He's made you a new self by his death and resurrection. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And and he's not talking about put to death your body because your body's earthly. He's not talking about physicality. What he's talking about is sinfulness. Put to death whatever is sinful in you. And you can see that by the way he describes it. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. And then in verse 8, he says a very similar phrase. It's a little less than put to death, but it's similar. He says, now, but you must put them away. You must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, and lying. You know, the, the old Puritans used to talk about this much more than the modern church does today. We don't like to talk about killing our sin. In fact, we don't really like to talk about sin in general. But in, in the past, there was, a, there was a period of time where people really took this seriously. They took sin seriously, and they took sin killing sin seriously. One of those guys was a guy named John Owen. He wrote a whole book uh, called on the mortification of sin. And if you're wondering what mortification means, it just means killing sin. Whole book on it. And here's just one quote from that book. And I I think this is helpful to us to remember why we need to do this. When sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone. But sin is always active when it seems to be the most quiet. And its waters are often deep when they are calm. We should therefore fight against it and be vigorous at all times and in all conditions even when there is the least suspicion. Sin is always acting, always conceiving and always seducing and tempting. Who can say that he has ever had anything to do with God or for God which indwelling sin has not tried to corrupt? This battle will last more or less all our days. If sin is always acting, we are in trouble if we are not always mortifying. Or in other words, we're in trouble. If sin is always acting, if we're not trying to put to death our sin, sin's going to get an upper hand in some way, fashion, or form. I know, nobody wants to hear that. You don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear it, but it's the truth. And so today we're going to talk about putting our sins to death, but first we're going to look at three reasons why we must, why we put our sin to death, why this is a good thing for us. Now there are more reasons, but here's three. First, our connection to Christ. If you are a believer, now I understand there may be some of you in here who are not believers in Christ, and please just listen to what I'm saying here. But if you are a believer in Christ, if you do put your trust in Jesus, if you are connected to him by faith, then your connection to Christ means sin is something that you're against, <laughs> right? I mean, in Colossians 3, which I read a few minutes ago from verses 1 and through 4, If then you have been raised with Christ, that implies that you have been given a new life. Just as Jesus raised from the dead, you too have been raised from the deadness of your sin. And then in verse 3 and 4, he says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see, Jesus is the righteous one. There is no sin in him. Somewhere in the vicinity of 33 years of living here on earth and not once did he give in to temptation. Not once did he give in to sin. But he came to save sinners from their sin, from the penalty of our sin, which is death, from the power of sin. And one day Jesus will even save us from the presence of our sin. Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead to show that sin is conquered. That he came to reverse the curse of sin. So why would we, if we're followers of Jesus, if we're connected to the righteous one, why would we want to continue to live in something that he's so against, that he came to save us from? I mean, imagine you're an Israelite and you're living in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. Well, you didn't. You personally didn't live for 400 years, but you know what I mean. So you're in Egypt and you're a slave and they're working you hard. And then this guy Moses comes up and he says, hey, God wants you to be free. And he saves you from slavery, brings you out in miraculous ways. And then you're walking towards the promised land. But yeah, you have to go through a desert first to get there. But this promised land, is, it, it's, it's called a place that is flowing with milk and honey. It is, a, it is a place that is just so wonderful, so amazing, so good, you can't even imagine it. And that's where God is taking you. But on the way, you start to complain. And you start saying, you know what? Remember those onions that we had back in Egypt? Onions. I mean, that is literally what they talk about when they complain. Remember the onions and the leeks that we had? Remember the cucumbers we used to have in Egypt? I mean, can't you come up with something better than cucumbers and onions to think back on? But yet, that's what they're thinking about, and then they get to the point where they say, we would rather go back to Egypt than go into the promised land. I fear that sometimes we, as Christians, want to go back to Egypt. Not literally, but metaphorically. We want to go back to our old ways. Because we think they were easier. We think they were better. But we're forgetting just how oppressive living in sin actually is. Just how destructive sin really is. Because of our sins, Jesus was put to death and so out of love for him, out of what he's done for us, that he died for our sins and he rose from the dead and now we have life and we have it to the full, out of that love and devotion for him, we want to put our sins to death, don't we? We do. If we're thinking correctly, if we're thinking rightly, we want to put this mess to death. And that leads us to the second reason why we want to put sin to death. And that's this, that sin deserves God's judgment. Not only do we have that connection to Christ, but sin deserves God's judgment. Again, uh, from Colossians 3, verses 5 and 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he lists some sins there. And then in verse 6, he says, on account of these, the wrath of God... Is coming. And I know because I know some of you, I know how astute you are. I know how observant you are. And so I know that you notice that the word wrath occurs twice in this passage. The wrath of God is coming, but in verse 8, we also read, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath. So on the one hand, we've got God saying, I'm bringing wrath against sin. And on the other hand, he's saying, But you're not to have wrath. What's going on there? How can, how can, is that a double standard? How do we we figure that out? Well, I wish that I had time to like dive in deep on this, and maybe one day I'll come back to it and we'll talk more. But in general, anger and wrath, in and of itself, it's not sinful. Anger is an emotion, okay? In and of itself, it's not sinful. It's what we do with the anger that is often sinful. It's how we express our anger that is often corrupt. It's the reasons behind our anger that tends to be skewed. But when it comes to God and his anger, there is no sin. There is no skewed views. There is no corruption, because God is perfect and good in all of his ways. So what he's talking about in this passage when he says that the wrath of God is coming against certain sins, it's because God is a just judge, and he's bringing just judgment against sin. As uh, J.I. Packer said in one of his books, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. Just let me pause there. Anybody, like, you know, got the t-shirt on that one? That, yeah, that's, that's what my anger looks like. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. Now, I can hear people say, yes, I understand that God, in his goodness and in his justice, he, he wants to and he will judge sin. Like murder. Murder's bad. So, yeah, murders deserve judgment. Theft, rape, things like that. Yeah, those are the kinds of things that God should bring judgment on. But my sins, my sins aren't that bad. I'm not all that bad, really. Just ask anybody. I'm a good guy. Take a look at verse 5 again. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he names some sins. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion. Maybe that could be better translated lust. that, That is any sexual activity outside the bounds God has established in a marriage between husband and wife. Including lusting after someone who is not your spouse. that pretty much hits all of us on some level. Evil desire. Any of our desires that are not God-honoring, any desire we have that goes against the grain of how God designed us to be, well, we've all had those. Let me just tell you, your pastor has had those. When we lived at Foxcroft back a few years ago, our neighbors had a dog that barked at all kinds of times at night. And there were several times where I really thought about getting a bone and putting some poison on it and throwing it over the fence. Thankfully, I did not do it, but that was what was going on inside me, okay? That's evil desire. And we've all had something, maybe not that bad, but we've had something. And this one will really get all of us covetousness what is that it's greediness or as one commentator put it an inappropriate desire for more that's the american way folks let's get more let's get something bigger and better oh our iphone is run out of juice or whatever let's get a bigger and better iphone that costs even more oh wait a new new one's come out let's get that one too and an ipad and a macbook and look i'm talking to myself because i've got all those We just want more and more, and we're never satisfied. And that last one is called idolatry. Idolatry. Because when we love money or possessions more than God, when we put our trust in money or possessions more than we trust God, when our lives show that we are more concerned about getting more than knowing and serving God, we have ceased to worship God as God and we've started to worship something else. Yeah, I know this is heavy. But sometimes we need to hear the heavy things. All of us, every single one of us, has given in to at least one of these sins, if not all of them. And these sins deserve God's judgment. Now, I've got this whole section here, and I'm trying to debate whether I need to go through it or not. But I, I, I feel like I can hear someone say, but why? Why do those things deserve God's judgment? I mean, okay, I can see why murder deserves the judgment, but if I'm just thinking about killing my neighbor's dog, is that really that bad? Yeah, I understand that adultery is bad, but if I'm looking at someone that's not my spouse and lusting after her, is that really that bad? Why does sin deserve judgment? Why does God hate sin so much? Not just the really bad ones, but all sin. And there are lots of ways that we can answer that question. I'm going to try to do this quickly. (laughs) But one way that we often don't talk about is how ugly sin really is. How heinous it is. How awful it really is. We, We try to make it sound like it's not that bad. Let me give you some imperfect analogies, okay? If you push any one of these analogies too far, it'll break down. But I think if you look at it as a whole, it'll give you kind of an image, a picture of what, why sin is so bad. Um, first of all, we all know we've just gone through a pandemic, and we're still kind of going through it. According to Google statistics... The COVID-19 pandemic has caused 5,810,785 deaths worldwide. As horrible as that is, the mortality rate for COVID still hovers somewhere in the vicinity of 1%. In other words, around 1% of those who contract COVID die from. What if there was a disease out there where the mortality rate was not 1%, but 100%? How would we react to that? For a a disease that had a 1% mortality rate, we shut down everything and made everybody wear masks and, I mean, all kinds of stuff, right? What if it was a 100% mortality rate? That's sin. Sin has a 100% mortality rate, and every one of us is infected with it. That's the nature of sin. Sin leads to death. And since God is a perfectly good life giver, sin deserves judgment. Second, all right, and this one's a little silly, but just follow. Let's say that I design and build a car from scratch. I know, that's funny because I can't even put together like a simple watch. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, I design and build a, a car, and the point of the car is just to get me from point A to point B. I don't want something fancy. I don't want something that's, you know, like shiny. Just get me to point A to point B. But every time I get in the car that I designed and built, and I turn the ignition, not only does it not start, it catches fire. And I have to escape barely with second and third degree burns every single time. Now, at some point, I'm going to try to fix that car probably. And I keep trying and trying and trying. But at some point, I'm probably going to say, you know what? I don't think that car deserves to be in my driveway. I think that car deserves to be in the junkyard. Every one of us were designed by God to live a certain way. We were designed to honor Him. We were designed to live for Him. We were designed to love Him and to love other people. And yet, we all fail to do so, every single one of us. And unfortunately, this failure isn't always because we're trying real hard to do it right, but we just make mistakes right? It's often that we're not even trying. It's often that we're like that car that doesn't operate according to design, but it's not the designer's fault, and it's not simply a weird error or a mistake. There is a willingness, a rebelliousness that we have that says, I don't want to do it the way I was designed to do it. I want to do it some other way. That's the nature of sin. And that's one of the reasons it deserves judgment. Finally, another analogy. Suppose there's a person you want to befriend. Maybe it's someone in this room right now, and you look across the room, and you say, oh, that looks like a nice person. I think I would like to befriend him or her. And you go to that person, and you try to pursue a friendship, but every time you move towards that person, they push you away. They tell you to get lost. They tell you to go fly a kite. They tell you to go jump in a lake, to go play in traffic, to take a long walk off a short pier. In other words, this person doesn't really like you. And they keep saying awful, terrible things about you to your face and behind your back. You try to be kind and caring to them. You try to show your kindness to them, but they just take your kindness and they rub it in your face. And they attack you with your kindness. And they attack other people that you care about with your kindness. At some point, I bet each one of us would say, you know what, I don't know if this person is the kind of person I really want to be in a relationship with. They keep pushing me away. Millard Erickson who was really just kind of summarizing C.S. Lewis, said, and here's the quote, sin is a person saying to God throughout life, go away and leave me alone. Hell is God's finally saying to that individual, you may have your wish. It is God's leaving one to oneself as he or she has chosen That in a sense, every single person who experiences the judgment of God, they're experiencing it because they don't want to have anything to do with him. That's the nature of sin. Now for the Christian, we've said a lot of bad news. Let's let's say some good news here. For the Christian, what our sins deserve, Jesus took upon himself at the cross. When he was nailed to two pieces of wood, and we, when we recognize that, we see, oh, wow, my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. No wonder we want to say praise the Lord. Right? But when we recognize how sin affects us and what it costs Jesus to save us from our sins, don't you want to kill it? Squash it. Smash it. Just get rid of it. Who wants that mess in their life? All right, final one. Final reason why we want to put sin to death. And I'll I'll do this quickly. Sin harms us and others. I don't need to spend much time on this because I know everyone has experienced this. Verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. If I was to ask you to raise your hand if you have been hurt by someone... Because of something sexual, some evil desire, or something about greediness, I dare say that most of us in this room would be able to raise our hand. And if that doesn't fit us, how about verses 8 and 9? But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. If I was to ask you to raise your hand, if you have been hurt by someone, Because of anger, wrath, or malice, or slander, or obscenity, or lying, I think every one of us would be able to raise our hands. And unfortunately, if I asked you, have you hurt someone by doing one of those things, every one of us would be able to raise our hands. Do you see why sin needs to be killed? It needs to be destroyed in our lives. This is not something we play around with. It needs to be murdered. I know you've never heard a pastor tell you to murder something, but that's what we're going to do today for your action point. And this is for all you who love acrostics. Murder your sin. Murder it. And check this out. I'm going to go through these quickly. First of all, mind your thoughts. Sin is never something that's outside of us. It always starts on the inside. So when you start thinking thoughts that you know are going somewhere that you shouldn't go, start there. Do not wait until your hand is in the cookie jar. Right? Get it before you think about the cookie jar. Or as soon as you think about the cookie jar, you say, My mom told me not to get the cookie jar. Right? Second, for you, understand the heinousness of sin. Like, if you need to go back over those things that I just said earlier, that's fine. Or if you just want to pick a sin and just think about how awful it really is if you play it out. Just understand that sin really is ugly. It really does harm us. It really does harm others. And it's ugly and nasty. Why would we want it in our lives? For our request the help of others. This is one of those things that I know it makes people uncomfortable. But if we really are serious about putting our sins to death, we're going to need help. So, Request the help of others. If you know you've got a certain area of your life that is sinful and you're not getting a handle on it, ask somebody to pray for you. Ask someone to keep you accountable. Ask someone to enter into your life to help you with that. For D, don't play around with sin. Don't play around with it. For some of us, we like to see just how close to the cliff we can get before we fall off, right? Don't do that. Keep a good distance. In fact, what the scriptures say is to flee from temptation, to flee from sin. E, expose your sin to God. One of the things I have learned as a pastor is that sin is like a fungus. It grows best in the dark. And the more you hide stuff, the more that sin is going to grow expose it to the light of God. Confess your sin. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to pretend like it's not there. Come to God and say, you know what, God? I know it's there. You know it's there. Let's deal with this. Jesus died for this sin, so let's deal with it so that it can no longer be a major part of my life. And then finally, rely on Christ and the Spirit. One of the things... Another one of those things that I've learned as a pastor is that when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That nothing really does mean nothing. Apart from Jesus, we can fight sin all day long. But the next thing you know, we're going to have a whole tub of ice cream sitting on our lap, and we're just going to be chugging it in. Right? Right? Because that's, sin waits until we're weak. Sin waits until we're tired. Sin waits until we are at a point where we just can't take it anymore. And then it says, wouldn't this be so nice? So don't rely totally on yourself. Rely on Christ. Rely on the Spirit. Say, Jesus, I need you. Spirit, I need you to fill me and empower me so that I will say no to sin. I know that's a lot, but... I really do believe that if you were to write that acrostic down and put it somewhere where you could remember, and when you're dealing with sin, think, am I minding my thoughts? Am I understanding how heinous this sin really is? Am I really requesting the help of others? Am I playing around with sin or am I trying to run from it? Am I exposing my sin to God? Am I relying on Christ in spirit? If we went through just that quick checklist, I believe that the Holy Spirit will really help you and me to put to death our sins. It will be a lifelong battle, but I believe the Spirit will help us to grow in more victory over time. All right. So because of Christ and by the power of the spirit, let's seek to snuff out our sin because that's what it deserves. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I know this is a tough sermon. It's tough for me to write, tough for me to give, tough for us to hear. And we know, Jesus, that you are the one who died for our sins and rose from the dead so that we would have life. We want that life to be expressed in us fully. So help us to put to death our sin. And not just that, but as we'll talk about next week, help us to put on those things that will help us to replace those sinful habits with that which is good, which reflects more of you. And we ask this, Jesus, in your name and for your glory and for our good. Amen.